uh, navigating our world, navigating our culture, has become increasingly complex, hasn't it? I don't think there can be any argument about that. Um, for instance, some of us are old enough to remember when televisions had knobs on them, and that knob on the, on the television had about 12 notches. Did you get 12 channels in your house? No, I don't know why it had 12 notches. You only got about three or four channels that actually came in clearly. And the problem, of course, is that you had a, very, a, a real limited uh, opportunity to watch, you know, just whatever was on, right? At 6 o'clock, all four channels had the news. Then at 6.30, at least when I was a kid, Wheel of Fortune was on at that point at 6.30. Still is. But there, were just, there was a limitation to what you could watch. And if you weren't sitting down when something came on, you didn't get to see it. I mean, we didn't have DVR. If you missed it, you missed it, right? Now, and see, I don't exaggerate when I say this. Right where you sit, right now, you can, on your cell phone, stream multiple different shows dedicated to competitive cupcake baking. <laughs> and if you are a fan of competitive cupcake baking, and who among us isn't, then the, the simplicity to complexity that's occurred over time is a, is a great blessing to you. You're very happy about that, aren't you? Now, it's a harmless example. Let me give you one that's a little more serious. There is, uh, in 2016, so two years removed now, New York City officially and legally recognized 31 unique genders for people to assign themselves. No longer just male and female but now 29 more beyond that. Facebook in 2014, I'm sure it's more now, Facebook recognized over 50 genders. Now, how does a Christian navigate this kind of landscape that we find ourselves in? Because we read in our book, we read in Genesis chapter one, the first chapter of the Bible, uh, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And for basically the entirety of human history, there's been no debate on that issue. It's always been male and female, but at least here in our culture, uh, the tide has turned and is turning, and I don't think there's any going back. I think this is the way we're headed, okay? Now, this is not a sermon about television or about gender, but it's, a, it's a, the question, the larger question we have to ask ourselves is, what is our place in the world? As those who want to know and love and follow Jesus, what do we make of the shifting sands of culture? How do we navigate a world that is splintered off in a million different directions concerning what is true, concerning what is morally right and wrong, right? when there are so many different opinions, and every opinion uh, should have an equal and valid place at the table, right? That's what our relativistic culture believes. How do we navigate that as people who are called to follow God and worship Him in spirit and in truth? Now, there's a couple of different routes we can take. One is that we can attack the culture that we can basically just stand back and affirm that we are right, we are good, they are bad, and they are wrong, and we can kind of lob grenades at them from afar and just talk about how bad the culture is, right? It's going to H-E-L-L in a handbasket and good riddance, okay? We can also, we can withdraw from the culture, not attack, but just withdraw and basically create an arm's length that everything they say and do and believe, we're going to create as best we can our own subculture and just avoid all that stuff as much as we can. Stop watching the news, stop engaging at all costs, because in the effort to remain pure and unstained from the world, we just keep it away. We could, of course, also assimilate, which means that we just get so cozy and comfortable 
in the culture that we just blend in and there becomes no distinction at all. That what it means to be a Christian is in no way distinct from what it means to be anything else. And I used the term relativism a minute ago, where basically everything is on the table and it's equally valid and we just become like everybody else. Now I am, by confession, I'm guilty of all three of those at different times, of attacking, of withdrawing, of assimilating and becoming like. But what I want us to see today is that God actually calls us to a better way. There's another option. We're not limited only to those three. God actually calls us, on one hand, to live in a devoted and distinct way. The scripture says, be holy for God is holy, right? As obedient children, imitate him. But also God calls us at the very same time to lovingly engage the culture, not to attack, not to withdraw, not to assimilate but to live as Christ in a darkened world. And that's really what Jeremiah 29 gives us insight into here. And I'm going to give you the larger context of this chapter. What has happened in Jeremiah 29, God has judged his people, the people of Israel, who have been rebellious and sinful for a prolonged time. He has finally brought his judgment upon them, and it comes in the form of them being conquered and overrun and exiled. The most powerful nation in the world at the time, Babylon, the, the pagan nation of Babylon, has entered into Jerusalem, conquered them militarily, and has now brought them out of Jerusalem and taken them in exile to Babylon. And you can just try to imagine how, just how defeated, how despondent, how disillusioned the people of Israel would have been at this stage in their history. Something has happened to them that they didn't think could happen. They didn't think this could happen to God's people, and yet this is where they find themselves. Now, meanwhile, there are prophets running around in the midst of the people of God claiming great news for them. Don't worry, the exile won't last long. God's going to bring us back out of Babylon and into Jerusalem. Don't even, don't even unpack your bags, okay? We're coming home soon. And that's when God speaks into the situation. And God speaks through his true prophet, Jeremiah, Jeremiah writes a letter that is then sent to the leaders of Israel who are in exile to Babylon. And that's where we are in Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 4. What Holly just read for us? God speaks, and God says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. God says, for one, the false prophets who have come to you to tell you that this exile will be short-lived, painless, they're lying to you. I did not send them. In fact, if you read through the rest of this chapter, God says in no uncertain terms, it's going to be 70 years in exile which means a great many of you who have been taken out of Jerusalem into Babylon, you're never coming back. You're going to live out the remainder of your days there, okay? And after 70 years, God promises that he'll bring them back. But you notice what God commands them to do in the meantime? He says, build houses. Live there. Plant gardens for food. Dig your roots into this place. Get married and have kids. 
The command is not to form a secret militia to take down Babylon from the inside. That's not why God sent them there, not to attack. No, God says, I want you to build your lives in this place. Make homes for yourselves and grow and flourish. He says, have kids and have grandkids. I want you to grow and not decrease while you're there. The command would have been totally counterintuitive to them. I mean, try to imagine. Which prophet are you going to be more inclined to listen to? The one who says, don't unpack your suitcase, we're going home soon? Or the one who says, ah, it's going to be 70 years. Start planting food. Start building structures. Make a home here. This is not what they wanted, and this is not their understanding of God's uh, kind of fathering of the nation of Israel. Surely he wouldn't subject us to this, but this is, what's, this is what's come now as a result of their sin. This is God's judgment for them. But it's not judgment in the sense that God just wants them to be completely miserable and to suffer. He actually says, verse 7, Seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you into. Pray for it, for its welfare will be your welfare. God actually promises them that if they will obey his word, he's going to set up an, uh, the opportunity for them to actually experience blessing and flourishing in a pagan and darkened place. But they've got to seek the welfare of that place. Now, I want you to think about the grand plan of God here. When we think about how God works all throughout the Bible, he almost always works differently than we would if we were him. He almost always works counterintuitively against the grain. He does things, he says things, he commands things that don't make any sense to us. Jesus comes along and actually raises the ante on that. He says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, things that don't make sense to our natural hearts because God is calling us to something supernatural. And that's what he does here. Think about all the ways that God unfolds this plan for his people. First, he uses a pagan king, King Nebuchadnezzar, to come in and exercise God's judgment by taking Israel captive. He uses a pagan king in order to do that. Then he removes his people from their homeland, from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was so deeply ingrained to the identity of God's people. It's hard to, it's really hard for us to to fathom. You're probably proud to be an American, and that's a good thing, but you have to multiply that considerably to know what it is to be God's people rooted in the promised land, the place where God called them and where he established his temple. This is Jerusalem, and they've been removed now and exiled. Then, not only does he take them out of Jerusalem, but he sends them into enemy territory. They're going now to a pagan land where nobody accepts and lives by their values. This is a place that does not accept who they are. It doesn't worship the God that they worship. And if that's not enough, God says, I don't want you to just hold your nose while you're there and endure it. I want you to, I want you to pray and I want you to work for their good, for the good of these people, your enemies. Now, in all of this, does God say attack? Does he say withdraw? He certainly doesn't say assimilate, become like them. No. God says, live there like my people live. Live there as my people. In 1 John, it says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, but he also said, you are the light of the world. There's a sense in which Israel right here is being called to live in the midst of this darkened culture as lights, because in so doing, they're going to make that city a better place. They're going to point people to God's glory and his grace, and they're going to experience welfare also. They're going to be blessed 
in, to the degree that they obey God and live as he's called them to live. Now, where does a story like this <coughs> intersect with us? Right? We don't, we're not living in the same set of circumstances that Israel is, and it's almost hard to see the, the connective tissue here. But there's an amazing insight that, that Jeremiah has given to us by God's word that connects to the New Testament church. And I want you to see it in 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible or the Bible on your phone, flip way toward the back of your Bible to the right there to 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, it's like the third or fourth to last, fifth, sixth to last book in the Bible. Y'all don't hold me to that. I'm just making up little numbers here. It's toward the back. Okay, you get what I mean. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter's writing to the church. And what we're going to study 1 Peter at length this year, the whole book. Um, but one of the things he's doing in 1 Peter 2, he's reminding the church of their identity, who they are as God's people. And based on who we are, Peter's now going to tell us how to live in the midst of a culture that does not accept, appreciate uh, what a Christian is. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, he gives us a very stark command here. He says, Beloved, speaking to the church, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. That's the church. Fear God. Honor the king. Now, I don't have to, to tell you all the parallels between the Jeremiah text and this one. I mean, I think some of them are very obvious to us. But there are three things that, that Peter says to the New Testament church that directly apply, I think, to us in our present moment here. He says three things. He says, first, that the church is made up of aliens and strangers. You notice how he calls us that in verse 11? As strangers and aliens. Isn't that an interesting use of, of terminology here? Do you, I don't know if you think of yourself that way. But there's a sense in which being a Christian is a journey through a foreign land. That our true citizenship, the Apostle Paul said, is in heaven. And that this earth is not our ultimate home. We don't root ourselves here. We don't tether ourselves to the world like maybe we once did because we have been uh, taken into relationship as adopted sons and daughters of God. And therefore, this world, there's a sense of animosity and there's a sense of, of, um, of otherness now that we experience as those who have been given God's Spirit. Jesus said it to his disciples like this. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But you're not of the world. And because I chose you out of the world, Jesus said, therefore the world hates you. The world hates you. That means the world, the world maligns us for what we are. The world doesn't understand what we believe and why we believe it. And so, no, we're not in exile in the same way that Israel was, not by a long shot. But we are surrounded. We are surrounded by a dominant culture that does not share our values and beliefs. In fact, increasingly, you've seen this, you found this to be true, that, that to hold basic Christian beliefs, which at one time in our culture was normal, 
has now become something bigoted, awful, how dare you? And there, we, we are truly aliens and strangers on the earth. Now, second, Peter commands us to live in such a way that reflects God's righteousness and points people to God's glory. The fact that we're aliens and strangers might cause us to want to withdraw, right? To step away, us versus them. But no, you, you see what Peter says? Verse 12, it's worth repeating. Verse 12, it's worth memorizing. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. The Gentiles were the pagan peoples, those who didn't know God. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, turn and glorify God in the day he visits us. We see this, we're strangers on the earth because our true citizenship is in heaven, but we don't withdraw, we don't siphon ourselves off from the rest of the world. Peter says, you notice this, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, right? We don't live in a separate encampment away from them. He says we live with them, around them, and therefore we should behave in such a way that they recognize the utter uniqueness and glory of God that has been given to us. His ultimate goal for them is that they would turn and glorify God in the day He comes. That is to say they've experienced His grace and they've come to know Him themselves because of our influence. You can't do that from far away. And that's why, third, Peter says, we do it as part of the fabric of society. Submit yourselves to human institutions, he says. Honor all people. And that command reflects what God said to Israel. If you, if you remember back in Jeremiah 29, he said, build houses, plant gardens, have kids, and seek the welfare of the godless and darkened city of Babylon, something that made no sense to Israel in the moment. But God says, again, you've got to seek the welfare, pray for the welfare of these people. You can't do that from far away. You can't do that from an attack mentality. You certainly can't do it from an assimilated way of being where you just become like them and then you have no witness to give. Right? We do it within the fabric of society while still maintaining what Peter says. Keep your behavior excellent. There's a distinction about us. But we do that together, okay? Those two things are woven together. Now, this is a, 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 an incredibly difficult balance to strike. I mean, I don't have to tell you this. It's so hard. I find, as a parent, just turning on the TV when my children are in the room is an adventure in itself, right? Because of what might come across to them, right? And things that, to me, are not a big deal, but there's a subtle influence there that I don't recognize. That's, there's an undercurrent there. That's, if you're a parent, you know exactly what I mean. It can be terrifying. It can be paralyzing. Okay? It's a difficult balance to strike in terms of how we remain pure and seek purity and godliness, but also engage the culture. But it's, it's, we've got to recognize this, that God calls us to the harder thing. He just does. He doesn't lower the bar for us. To lower the bar would be to say, attack. Just lob grenades and tell everybody how bad they are and how good we are. Withdraw. Create a little Christian subculture where we have our own restaurants and bookstores and, and we just siphon ourselves off to protect ourselves from them. God didn't allow that. And he certainly doesn't say assimilate, which that's easy too. It's easy to just blend in because then you're no longer maligned for who you are and what you believe. Nobody even knows what you believe because we've just become like everybody else, right? It's easier, and God doesn't call us to the easier thing. He calls us to the difficult thing, which is to live as Christ in our world, Jesus Christ, who was not compromising when it came to sin. He never sinned, and yet he made it his effort every single day, his whole heart given to the pursuit of sinners. He was not influenced by their behavior, right? But he was also not disgusted 
by them. He actually came to save them. And you know what? Them is you and them is me. Jesus has saved me from all of the, uh, the attitudes, actions, thoughts, behaviors that were utterly condemnable for God. God has saved me, okay? And so if you have this attitude as a Christian of us versus them, you look out at the surrounding culture and it's us versus them, the problem with that, besides the fact that it's ungracious, the problem with that is that we were them. And we didn't earn our way over to the other side. God graced us. He gifted us life in Jesus Christ. We're no better than anybody else. We've simply received of his grace and have now been called to walk with him. And we cannot influence a culture from behind closed doors, siphoned off. We can only influence them as we engage them as part of the fabric of this society. And now I've got to, I'm going to wind us down here by getting a little more specific. Because when I hear the word culture, and maybe you're this way too, I don't, I don't think of central Mississippi, okay? I don't think of my neighborhood. I tend to think of something removed, New York City, Hollywood, the media, the news, culture, somewhere far out there, that's true, but not here. And it is true that, you know, central Mississippi, uh, we're not New York City. You know, I, I'm my, I'm, I don't know this for a fact, but it's my guess that the state of Mississippi still holds to two genders. Correct, come correct me after the sermon if I'm wrong. Right? So we live in a place where in terms of this extreme culture that we see on television, maybe we don't experience that in the day-to-day. Okay? But that's irrelevant to our conversation okay? because it's coming. If it's not here today, it's going to be here for our children and our grandchildren. Right? We're not, we're not going to push that back in our own effort. Here's the bigger question and the more specific question I want to ask us. It's not so much about culture, but it's about community. Let's talk about Rankin County. Let's talk about Madison County, Hines County. Are we living as God's people seeking the welfare of the community that he's actually placed us in? I mean, think about that. Are we seeking the welfare of the community in which God has called us to live? Are we living as God's people, not just in the larger culture, that's, that's really too big of a block to get a chisel on, perhaps. But right here in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, are we abiding by the Word of God that we've read today? Is this the, is this the regular pattern of who we are as Christians? My family, we moved over here to Madison County uh, mid-May of last year, and we love it. Uh, we love our neighborhood. We love our, uh, the schools that our kids attend. Um, uh, Kroger is five minutes from the house. Chick-fil-A is eight minutes from the house. Can I get an amen? <laughs> we love our community, but I have to keep coming back to this question for me, this, this issue of what I find myself doing. I find myself living in the community, shopping here, eating here, but am I just functioning here? Am I, in some sense, am I just using this community and enjoying its amenities? Or am I seeking God's heart for the welfare of my city? And there's a world of difference there. Am I just using this place that I call home, or am I seeking the welfare of this place and its people? And I can't fall back on this, you know, my civic duties. Well, we pay our taxes, we pay our HOA dues, we, we vote, right? Those are good things, but there's nothing distinctly Christian about any of those things. Am I, is my family, are we seeking the good, the welfare of our community? And this is the... the, the question we have to really wrestle with because what the scripture has said about us today, we've seen it. We are resident aliens here. 
That's a good way to think of us. We're resident aliens. This is not ultimately our home, but it's also not a place that we forsake and run away from. We're resident aliens. God has called us to this place. You may not be here forever. You may move away at some point, but God's called you here right now. Paul said in Acts 17 that God has predetermined the time and the place in which you were born so that you might know and walk with him, right? That there, there's a sense in which God has called you here, even if just for a brief time in your life, you're here and you're not here just to function. You're not here just to use up the amenities. We're here to live as salt and light. What Jesus said, we are salt and we are light. That means that our presence in the community, we are meant to season and brighten the place that we call home. That, that if you somehow disappeared off the map, that the community would actually miss you. The community wouldn't be the same. That if any given church in our community were just to disappear one day, that there would be a hole left in its place, that the community would not be the same because of the church's presence there. And so here are the questions that I'm just living with right now. I'm preaching to me, okay, and maybe it'll resonate, but I'm, this is me. How often do I pray earnestly for God's good work in my community? Earnestly, that God would do great things, gracious things in this community. How often do I pray sincerely for the salvation within this community of those who do not know Jesus, who aren't walking with him? Something that burdens my heart, what I call cultural or casual Christianity, where everybody believes in Jesus, but not everybody actually walks with Jesus. So prevalent here. Something we want to try to, to, to push back through our efforts in disciple-making. Am I praying for that? Am I praying that the veil would be lifted in that case and that people would see Jesus for who he really is and follow him? And beyond prayer, am I actively seeking the welfare of the city in that kind of way? Am I actually walking out the things that I'm praying for? See, it can't be enough that I just live and shop and eat and work here. Even for God's people, we, in, in Jeremiah, God's people had been exiled into enemy territory. They were surrounded by a pagan culture, something they never thought possible. They couldn't wait to be removed from that painful situation, and yet God said, settle in and seek the welfare of that place. Now, if it wasn't too good for them, if God called his people in that circumstance to live that way, then certainly he calls us all the more to live in such a way that reflects the grace of Jesus, that we will flourish in the process as we point our community to Christ. Uh, most churches do a really good job of being in the community. You know where most churches are. You see them. they got signs out front. Relatively few churches do a good job of being for the community. And as we continue, I pray by God's grace, to grow and flourish as a church, to uh, live out and fulfill the vision that God's given us as a church, I, I hope that we're always prayerful for that, that we wouldn't just exist here. We wouldn't just be on the map and have signs that point people in our direction, but that people would know us by our good deeds, that people would know us as a bright shining light that proclaims the grace of Jesus, that they might know him too. That's what it means to be for the community. And so I don't want you to personally benefit from Harvest Church and that be it. I, my hope is that none of us would ever settle into this very mundane existence of consumer Christianity where we enjoy church, it benefits me, it benefits my family, and that's the end of it. But that we sincerely would see ourselves as ministers of the gospel. That's why we are here, that we might be equipped together for the work of ministry. There's not one minister at Harvest Church. You add up the number in this room. That's how many ministers are here right now. 
because that's what God has called us to be together. That's why we develop some core commitments uh, at Harvest Church. Um, you may not have this in front of you. I want you to get it before you leave. Uh, we've got them right here on the, on the way out. These are, are what, for us, are essential things that we want to value, that we want to engage in together as a church family this calendar year. Um, you, you, if you're new to us today, you don't know this perhaps, but uh, here's the truth. We don't have very many programs as a church. We don't run a lot of events. In fact, I, I can't think of a single one off the top of my head, okay? And that's intentional. I say that's intentional because for us, if we exist to grow and multiply disciples of Jesus, the deep conviction of my heart is you cannot program that into a church. You cannot create events that create uh, somehow a, a way of life. No, it's got to be lived out as God's people in the everyday stuff. It's got to be lived out in our community. It's got to be lived out in our families and among our friend groups and our small groups. And so we don't really program stuff here. And so when we talk about core commitments, these are things that are very simple. These are things that are incredibly straightforward. I don't think you'd be confused by any of this stuff. There's only three of them. It's not meant to be all-encompassing. But for us, if we're going to grow as God's people, these are three things that we wanted to highlight that we would be diligent about this year. I'm not going to go through all of them in detail, right? There'll be time enough for that. The first is that we're dedicated to God's Word, and we've got, I'm just going to just keep rolling stuff out here. We've got a Bible reading plan for that. Grab one before you leave, okay? We're going to be, the third one, we're going to love God's church, that we're going to love and serve God's church. If that's not Harvest Church for you, fine, provided that you're somewhere loving and serving God's church. The local church is God's plan A to reach the world for Christ, and he did not give us a plan B. And so we've got to love the, the avenue that he gave us, his people, his church. But it's this middle one that I want to read for you. It says, live out God's mission. I commit to love and serve my neighbors through the shared mission of my small group. That we're going to be the kind of people, increasingly, increasingly, we're going to be the kind of people that see ourselves as ministers of the gospel and, and see ourselves as being propelled outward for the sake of the gospel. God did not save us so that we could be personally benefited by his grace and leave it at that. He saved you to get to somebody else. He saved you in, in the, the hope that you would take on the character of Christ to such a degree that you would look at the world the way Christ does, not as something that we attack or withdraw from or that we become like them, but that we would see them as God's created in God's image and that we would seek the welfare of the people around us, that certainly we would serve them and do good things for them, but to seek their welfare means that we would model and speak Christ to them. That's what he came to do, to seek and to save that which was lost. That was us. And I, one of the key things that is so important for us as a church, Jesus Christ has saved us, which means he has brought us to God. Jesus, by his grace, brought us near. He didn't wait for us to earn our way in. We never could. None of us deserve to be here right now. We're unworthy of that grace, but he's lavished it upon us and he's brought us near. But having brought us near, he delights to then send us back out. He sends us back out into the harvest. We're going to talk about that more next week. He sends us out and he says, now go be my witnesses in, in your community here and now and also to the ends of the earth. Right? He brings us in, but he, he slingshots us back because there's work to do. There's something that we're called to be. And so for today, when, I, when it says, I'm going to live out God's mission through my small group, um, the way that we, again, we don't, 
programatize. Is that the word? We don't make it a program. We make it relationship. If you're in a small group, then part of being a small group at Harvest Church means that we live on mission together. We don't just have Bible study. We don't just enjoy fellowship. Those are two uh, absolute important foundational things. But we also live outward on mission together. And it's a lot easier and more enjoyable to together than it is alone. I don't know if you've ever tried to do it alone. It's really difficult. God called us to do it together. And if you're not in a small group, you have the opportunity to check the little box on your tear-off. There, You can let us know that you have an interest in that. I'll follow up with you on that. But I want you to understand that part of what it means is not just that we learn Bible together and that we fellowship together, important as those things are. We're going to seek God's will for us on mission in the communities that he's called us in. So if wherever you live, you're going to have a small group in that place, right? I don't ask Rankin County people to drive up to Madison for small group. That's irresponsible because the mission's in Rankin County in that case, if that's where you live, just as ours is in Madison County. We're going to live on mission together. Our small group, my small group that meets in our house, we're having that conversation right now. We're going to have it again tonight. How is God going to uniquely call us to a place of ministering to people right here in this community? That's a difficult question, right? doesn't seem maybe like it'd be that hard, but it is, because it requires that my heart turns to this place that God's called me to and us together to. And so God has brought us in, and now he sends us back out that our mission as a church is not just to send a select few out far away. We get to do that by God's grace. We get to send people to the nations. But God's mission for the church is right here and right now in the community that he's called you to live. That we are resident aliens. We are not of this world. This world is not our home and it's not our hope. But in the, the vapor of time that God has allowed us to live here, that he strategically placed us here, he has given us a world of opportunity to live as Christ, distinct and holy, yes, but engaged and loving that others might see him and turn and glorify him in the day that he visits us. Let's pray about this. Father, we've got so far to go. And I don't speak for everybody. I think there are, I'm, I'm certain that there are people, couples, families in this room right now who are doing so well in this regard. And would you humble us, Lord, to learn from them? Would you humble me that, Lord, in the places where I'm deficient, in the places where I've been ignorant, or just indifferent, that, Lord, you turn my heart through the example of your church, through the example of Christ himself, that what we are called to, Lord, is not consumerism. We're not, just, we're not here to just enjoy the blessings of being Christians. We're here also, Lord, to be propelled outward, to be called into the places that, Lord, you have called us to, um, for the sake of making your glory shine, for the sake of making your word and truth known, and for the sake of loving um, those that we live amongst. That, Father, this is, this is hard for us. You know, the, the, the world, um, it's, it's, it's very easy for us to just despair. What is this world coming to? And, Lord, that, that frustration is real, and that, that lamentation is real. There's so much darkness in our midst. But Father, we don't, we're not the kind of people that are called to attack or withdraw or assimilate. We're called, Lord, to live as Christ. Jesus Christ, who broke through the darkness with his light, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That, Lord, that would be our heart. That we would give our lives for the sake of your mission. 
Lord Jesus, would you... Um, I, I suspect that all of us in some sense right now, in some way, we need our hearts to turn. We need to repent. We need to say in all sincerity, Lord, I've missed this. I'm, I'm too focused on the mirror and not on the window outward. And Father, you've got to change my heart. And Father, I pray that you would. And that we collectively as a church, that we would be the kind of people now that engage in this together. It's so much more wonderful and, and biblical and right that when we do it together as opposed to trying to do it alone. And so, Father, if there are sincere-hearted folks in this room right now, but they're just trying to do it alone, would you correct that and bring them into relationship so that we might do this as you've called us to, as a people, plural, not singular? Lord, where, we're, where we are deficient here, we know that you are gracious. We know, Lord, that our, our success in this area is not how we earn your love. You have loved us in spite of us. You've loved us fully in Christ, and that is settled. But, Father, having been loved and graced, having been gifted by your mercy, Father, let us have an uncompromising heart. We will not live only for ourselves. We will not use our community, but we will pray for and seek its welfare, and we will make Christ known here. Make it so. Make it so. In Christ's name, amen. amen.